0: hello and welcome back to the american writers 100 pages at a time podcast and we have made it through the first uh volume of the library of america's collection of mark twain's writings and that uh leads us into the second uh volume i'm going to be looking at i don't don't know quite the order they were published in i'm pretty sure it's not going to be in the order that we look at them um but but yeah this is uh one of his earliest works though um I guess the Gilded Age might have been his first book, or at least his first novel. This might have been his first book. I think, yeah, I think the Gilded Age was published in the 1870s, <coughs> sometime before the adventures of, of Tom Sawyer. But this, this was his first book, and it was basically writings. He wrote back to newspapers in America about this uh, tour, this pleasure cruise on the Quaker City um to to the old world um so it's it's really going to be about that encounter between the old world and the new world and the perceptions of both sides and while it's while it does that um it's going to be lambasting kind of american perceptions about what europe and what the old world is and it's going to uh especially be critical of kind of a fascination or of inflating of the value of, um, of those cultures. It's also uh, gonna be very critical of the experience of tourism itself. Um, and that's so common now. Uh, when Mark Town was writing this, it, it had just sort of darted but now tourism is such a big industry for almost all countries, a big part of their economy, and there's a lot of money and effort put into drawing in tourists. And the question is like, to what degree are those experiences like real, right? And I think pretty much universally here, there, there are things that they like. There's things that Mark Twain is impressed by, but largely we get kind of a feeling of boredom and banality in everything he, he experience, experiences. Um, now, how does he write this? Well, he calls it the "innocence abroad" because that's how he's referring to himself, him, and the other Americans who go on the trip. He writes, "The book is a record of pleasure trip, of a pleasure trip. If it were a record of a solemn scientific expedition, it would have been in that gravity, that pun profundity, and that impressive incomprehensibility, which." are now so proper to works of that kind and withal so attractive. Yet notwithstanding, it is only a record of a picnic. It has a purpose, which is to suggest to the reader how he would be likely to see Europe and the East if he looked at them with his own eyes instead of the eyes of those who traveled in the countries before him. So that's the concept of innocence. Innocence meaning not having been exposed to Europe before, just hearing stories, right? So a lot of what we get in this story too, or this book, is... Like a presumption about what one is going to see, and then the reality is going to be um, transformed. But then you're also going to get this this kind of overarching feeling of of boredom and all of it. It's like it's very much a tourist experience. Like they'll go to a town. They'll go to like they'll go to like a um, some place they you know they 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 never even heard of before. <clears throat> or maybe only heard of it in the Bible. They go to like um, Smyrna or Ephesus or a place like this. And of course, they have their stories and their ideas of what that is from culture. But when they get there, it's just sort of run down and ugly. And within a few days or a day or even a few hours, they're like, well, let's go on. Let's go to the next place. Right. It's kind of like that way with Gibraltar. You see that with um, uh, what's what's the island they visit? Let me check. It's like the ozors or madeira or something yeah i, th- I think it's the ozors it's one of those portuguese islands now of course that is the setup for the whole atlantic world it's the fundamental of those islands they bringing up sugar cultivation bringing in labor settling them but they become spring points for exploration farther abroad like the canary islands were for spain so in some ways it's the foundation of of modern america yet here it's just a a kind of rundown boring sort of place right and it's like seeing it you'd expect seeing it through the innocent eyes of of these people and mark twain in particular you know because mark twain would travel much more later on and he'd continue with the sarcastic tone in a lot of those other writings but he wouldn't be innocent anymore right this is him coming at it for the first time you'd expect awe and, and excitement, right? But no, it's not that. And why, why I find this interesting is this is how I feel about travel, to be honest. This is why I don't travel that much. I live abroad. I don't live in the country of my birth. But even here, you know, I meet other Westerners through work or whatever. And they're like fascinated with that Taiwan. They love everything about Taiwan. And I just find it kind of blah, right? Like, I don't think there's that much to see. There's kind of a boredom. I I kind of have that same boredom about it. Um, Now, it doesn't mean I couldn't potentially be excited about a place, but, but when you're in cities, it just is like the same everywhere. There's that sameness across the world. Now that's not the case with Mark Twain's voyages. There's a difference, but everything is contrived. I think that's the word I'm looking for. Everything is contrived in this book. Every visit, every experience, especially when they get to Europe, especially get to the places that have a lot more tourist traffic. Of course, this is kind of a route that they go on. So the route basically is they go uh, to Gibraltar, Ozars and Gibraltar, and then through France, they kind of go from Spain to, or they go to Tangiers, they go to North Africa for like a day. Then they go up through france and see like notre dame and, and paris and and maybe marseille they see the sites they see where you're supposed to go that's the point right they don't like spend a week or a month with the french peasant girls right, in the rural areas they go where you're supposed to go see what you're supposed to see then anyways they go down to italy and they see like of course where do they go they go to florence and they go to rome and they go to naples they go to like the renaissance sites and they see the renaissance art and and then they go like to greece and then they spend like a few days in like in yalta um and like sevastopol and then down to turkey for uh you know to be in ephesus which is of course very famous in in greece then to the middle east to the holy land and eventually to like egypt and then and then that kind of finishes the route so it's obviously this is something that only the elite at this point could do there there weren't budget tickets for this kind of thing first you're away from work for pretty much an unknown period of time because there's not like firm dates on all this stuff and they kind of play it by ear a little bit um there's there's that it's clearly very expensive i think it was like a thousand dollars was the was the, the, was the down payment or, or the cost of the ticket or whatever. And then there's all the expenses that you accrue over the trip for every stop, right? You need to buy something, your meals, your little crap, your souvenir crap that you buy to show off to the people back home. So that's kind of what we get here. I'm going to spend five episodes, uh, talking about this. So I'm going to be, probably be repeating myself a little bit about this because, because it is a lengthy work but um, there's good stuff here, really. It is uh, really a, a kind of an important book that I urge you to, uh, to read if you haven't already read it. Now, when we're done with Innocence Abroad, we're going to look at Roughing It, which is sometimes called Innocence at Home, which was written like three years later and covers really the Civil War years of Mark Twain when he went West. Um, so uh, it's essentially a travelogue of this tourist voyage he went in 1867 so it's very very early in his career remember as a young man he fought in the civil war for like two days then he went west and then of course that's all recounted in roughing it maybe i should have done that first i don't know but just i just opened it started going at it um so this was actually the first american cruise ship to visit europe and the holy land in this way um so it's historically significant Now, over the course of several months, as I said, it visited North Africa, France, Italy, Russia, various parts of the Ottoman Empire, especially the Levant and Egypt. Um, And there's a few groups here. There's a few groups on the trip. One of the tourists, Mark Twain was one of the tourists, and they were mostly upper class. Now, the cost, $1,250 plus expenses, would have made this trip really important. Unreachable for most Americans and that's by design. Obviously, you know, it's that's why you write books like this um, You know, why travel logs and travel literature were so popular When I started studying Chinese history in the 19th century, I was just amazed at how many missionary Accounts there were of China and they all were kind of bad. And they were mostly not that good There's a few more interesting points of view, but it was kind of roughly the same crap and they just but so like everyone who went to China wrote a book, it seems, and wrote about it. Maybe not sailors, but I'll get to that in a little minute. Bit. But, um, now for Twain, his fee was covered by the newspaper he was working for, and there was a hope there that the articles would would catch a subscription base, be attractive, and he was hoping to like basically profit by publishing the letters and the observations. Um, Now, the biggest group here, I guess they're sort of tourists, too. Um, I would put them in the same group as tourists. And they were Christians. So the biggest group were Christians eager to visit the Holy Land uh, and other religious sites such as those in Italy. And they're going to be a conspicuous part of the narrative. I I think I'm not going to say that much about some of the people. He does name a bunch. And if you read this carefully and take careful notes, you can kind of keep track of... Of some of these people, they don't really matter because they are just sort of the, the Christian gang on the Quaker City, and they're. Uh... Anyways, it provides a a window for Mark Twain to kind of make comments about American religion at the time, and, and so that's a useful group for him in in a literary sense. Now, of course, you also have the crew of the Quaker City; they, I guess, they reflect the working class element of the trip and they often like mock the pretension of the tourists like they travel and and they see the world differently right they don't see it in this contrived way they see it much more real so there's moments where the quaker city will drop these people off and they'll go do their kind of set route right they'll go to paris they'll go to florence they'll do whatever they have to do and then they'll come back like a few weeks later get back on the ship and travel somewhere else now, while this is happening, what are these people doing, right? They're, I guess, doing the work on the ship, maintaining the ship. Maybe they have uh, side hustles. I don't know. We don't get the huge window into them. But the little we hear from them, they are um, exposing, I think, the the arrogance of the tourists. Um, thinking they're they're like so intelligent about the world now. When actually it's like these sailors, you know, can know where they are by the sand on their boots or or, you know which part of the world they they traveled on by the just by the smell in the air or whatever. They know the earth in a much more intimate way than these tourists ever can. Um, Now of course you have people a third group where numerous people in different ports and now this is they're not on the Quaker City of course but they're throughout the tale they're hoping to profit from this growth of American tourism. And a tourist economy that's already sort of been there and been developed uh, and the results of this are often comical like the tour guides and the Americans making dumb st- stupid comments about uh, about like you know I was thinking everything's by Michelangelo that's one I remember a little bit later in the story. Um, they're trying to sell stuff. They're trying to sell services um, and it's it's real, a lot of the humor of the story story of, of this travel log comes from these relationships between the tourists and these europeans or middle easterners who who find this as an exploitable profitable industry for them right there's all these people that kind of graft around tourism right we still see this today right not just like businesses and travel agents and things like that but you know scammers and con artists and beggars and anyone else who can find a window into getting a bit of that tourism dollar. Um, so as I said, this was mostly a collection of his of his letters that he wrote back to newspapers and um, and the book was then published in 1869. So most of the stuff had been published before in some form uh, but it later on was put together as this book and most people obviously will read this book. They won't go through those old n- newspapers. Um, also, some public comments he made, speeches and stuff he gave about the, about the about the trip. So it's a historically significant trip, and it's really significant for really launching Mark Twain's career. Um, and you know, we can kind of break it up into two parts. The first half or so roughly corresponds with the European part of the voyage, and the second half deals with the Ottoman Empire, Russia, the Levant, and all that. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna stick to my hundred pages approach as always, and um, let's see what we have here. Now, tourism is kind of a vulgar business. Um, you know, I don't travel. I I do kind of get that feeling. That's kind of all a scam, and you're not seeing stuff authentically. The way you want to see something authentic, I suppose, is like live there right? Buy a one-way ticket, go around, try to find a job, you know, go to the local pubs, meet the people, go on dates. I don't know, but something like that. Actually experience it. It's not, you not going to experience it at the beach or, or going to the Eiffel Tower. And, and I'm the kind of person who doesn't feel seeing the Eiffel Tower is that important. I guess I see pictures of it and I can take a picture of it. The experience of seeing it in person will be Passing the picture will stick, but that's not better than the pictures. I can see in the book in a book. Um, now, Twain does seem to believe that travel can shatter prejudices, expose truths, break down myths, provide an education. Um, but I don't know if that's what tourism really is. And I, and I think really under the surface of this book is a deep cynicism about this whole experience. And it, it and I don't know if much changed since the 1860s. You travel to a predetermined place. Maybe you buy a guidebook that tells you this is where you should go or but guidebooks today will even say these are the hotels you should stay at. This is the restaurant you should eat at because it's the best place to get you know whatever snails in Paris. Or you follow what a travel company has kind of laid out for you. Um And the sites you see are those that are deemed important by others, by culture. And of course, these locations then get overrun with vendors. Tourists take photos, which creates a false memory. Right? I guess the proof of this is if I look at pictures of of trips I took on and I see I'm smiling, I'm like, oh, I must have been having a good time. But... I don't remember what I was doing that day when I took that picture. Maybe I was miserable. You know, maybe I was having a really bad day. I was really sad. I was upset about something, but the picture says I was smiling. So we, we, we create a false memory. Um, anyways, um, now one thing is going on here too, is like the breaking down of the mythology about Europe. This and I think this is still an issue today where people kind of have a feeling that Europe is cultured and sophisticated and progressive. Even people on the left will say, oh, we want to be more like Denmark or Sweden, those countries. They become a model for for what America isn't. America then becomes kind of fake and and commercial and uh, it's 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 young. I guess that's what it comes down to. It's juvenile compared to the age and maturity of Europe. And in Taiwan, you get the sense too when you talk to people that there's this feeling that well certain well in China I should say, when I lived in China, whenever I said I'm from America, people would always say, "Well, America only has 200 years of history. We have 5,000 years of history." Both of those statements are just wrong. America has 5,000 years of history if you want to go back that far, right? to the Neolithic transition or whatever. there have been people living in the Americas for that long. And if you flip the coin, like 5,000 years ago, that's where China was, the Neolithic. Those are mythical dynasties that go back that far. The real first historical dynasty, the Shang, is only, only goes back like 3,500 years or so, I want to say. But anyways, that's besides the point. There's this idea that the old world is old and the new world is new. And so there's something we can learn from the old world going back to our roots Um, but throughout this we get this kind of point observing the social inequality of industrializing Europe places being left behind places not keeping up with the modern world places that may have been great in the past Ephesus is a good example of this the discussion he has of that later in the book but it's you know it's full of just garbage. Uh, he writes this about Versailles, um, the, the palace people go to to witness the grandeur of monarchical France. It's a great example of the kind of place you must go to in France. And he writes, all through this Farbeau Street, Antoine, misery, poverty, vice, and crime go hand in hand. And the evidence of it stare one in the face from every side. Here the people live who begin the revolutions. Whenever there is anything of that kind to be done, they're always ready. Um, now, Twain sees these marginalized figures as historical actors making revolution, um, but his main purpose as a tourist is to visit dead places. He's not interested primarily in, in the living places. Um, and he even talks about how Louis Napoleon is taking care of the revolutions by rebuilding Paris and straightening the roads and all that. He, he gets into that. I always thought that was a later historical interpretation of that, but Mark Mark Twain was talking about it at the time, so it must have been in the newspapers at the time as really a justification for the rebuilding of Paris, is to make it impossible for those that rabble to build their barricades anymore, right? We're going to have the t- big boulevards that you can't barricade, or if they do, you can just put a can in there and blow, you know, blow up the barricades. You can't have the twisty, narrow Parisian streets that can be Um, Barricade it off and and be the the site of a revolution Um, Now twain is very interested throughout the book in the tourist relationship to the past Um, So now that's never accurate. It's always based on myth or the bible or stories or really vulgar knowledge. I think a good example. This is the michelangelo thing where there's it's kind of a running joke where they're just going around florence and rome and asking the tour guide is that by michelangelo is that by michelangelo because that's all they know right they have this they they ha- they have a sense of the past but it's, it's really ignorant it's like it's like a, a grade schooler's understanding of of the period um so he has these wonderful sketches pol- poking fun at how places such as like the leaning tower of pisa or the coliseum are presented um You know, and he, sometimes he tries to convert these into an Americanisms, like he he tries to write a handbill for the Roman Coliseum, really writing it as an American would write, advertise for it. But I'm saying this is fake too. This relationship with the past you're not they're not witnessing the past. They're witnessing, like the ruins and their own kind of corrupted mentality of what that past should be and is. And of course, the people who would profit from the tourism have no problem just sustaining that, right? And because and it's good for them and they don't, they don't care about the past that much either. So anyways, let's go through the chapters really quick uh, of what we get. So it starts out, is just the first chapter is just about the discussion of the excursion, the purchasing of the ticket and all that, and his desire to go and um, how he must go. Um, then we, he jumps right into it with the, um, with the assembling of the tourism, the tourists in chapter two, seeing their, their home, seeing where they're going to be staying on the, on the Quaker city. Um, and then, um, they spend time at sea becoming domesticated, getting used to, to travel. And that's so that's the first four chapters are basically maybe the first five chapters are basically about life at the sea, right? Life uh, as a traveler at at the sea. Um, And this is actually some of the closest windows we get into maybe um, some of these other tourists, maybe a bit about the sailors and the captains and the seamen who are um, there as well. And what do they do? Well, they smoke and they dance and they play billiards and play cards. Um, Play various games They play charades They do a mock trial All that They talk about Christianity Because again Most of the tourists are Christian So that's all The kind of the stuff they do And then In chapter 5 They arrive at the Azores And this is our first Really encounter with The old world Such as it were Even though Its distinction As the old world Is is a bit dubious Because it's really a product Of modern Portugal's Expansion into the Atlantic I think it was an uninhabited island before the Portuguese came and brought in Portuguese, <laughs> excuse me, and African labor, made it a sugar colony. And what we have here is an impoverished small community of people who are sort of being left behind by history. They once had their place in history, but now they're, they're really sort of abandoned here's how he writes about them he writes the community is eminently portuguese that is to say it is slow poor shiftless sleepy and lazy there's a civil government appointed by the king of portugal and also a military governor who can assume supreme control and suspend the civil government at its pleasure the island contains a population of about 200,000, almost entirely portuguese everything is statted and settled for the country was 100 years old when columbus discovered america the principal crop is corn and they raise it and grind it just as their great 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 grandfathers did they plow with the port slightly shod with iron their trifling little harrows are drawn by men and women small windmills grind the corn 10 bushels a day and there's one assistant superintendent to feed the mill and a general superintendent to stand by and keep him from going to sleep End quote so um a poor place now who's in charge here well it seems the jesuits are the most powerful group here. And the chapel is, is a centerpiece of, of, the, of the village. So essentially what we're told is, even though this is an entirely new place, you know, it's solely different from anything that Mark Twain and these tourists had experienced in America, right? With it's like the strong Jesuit culture, the Portuguese culture, the, the, the agricultural system. The ecology, it's all different, but it's just kind of, there's not much to say about it, ultimately. Um, the I mean, there's little things that impress him. Like he talks about the the roads being imp- impressive there, the roads that were built a long time ago and still sustained. But by and large, it's, it's just all forgetful. And when you read this book, it sort of becomes that way, these little windows into Into the old world become sort of forgettable they become they become the snapshots of Of life they, they become like little photographs each each article he writes is like a little photograph. He, he took in front of some site and So they spend one chapter there and then they go to Gibraltar so we see the pattern here is it's uh you experience it, you smell the air, you look at the people, and then you move on. And so they go on to Gibraltar. And there, of course, the Rock of Gibraltar is a really impressive thing to see. Uh, but we already get our first taste of just the banality and artificiality, the, the contrivedness of tourist experiences, and that's with the Queen's Chair story. So he keeps hearing the same story about the name of... Um, uh, of a hill in Gibraltar, so here's the story. I'll read it, but it gets get repeated. Now maybe he's exaggerating because it's funny when he does this, but I reckon it's somewhat true that everyone sort of just has the same story about the Queen's Chair and thinks the tourists want to hear it. So the story is this: that hill yonder is called the Queen's Chair. It is because one of the Queens of Spain placed her chair there when the French and Spanish troops were besieging Gibraltar and she would never move from that spot till the English flag was lowered from the fortresses. If the English hadn't been gallant enough to lower the flag for a few hours one day, she would have to break her oath or die up there. Quote. So that's the story. It's not a bad story. It's probably, um, it's probably not true. It's, um, it's probably just uh, something that gets passed along, but it's like everyone knows it. And it's like, that's the story you tell people about this hill, the Queen's Hill. It's just a part of a, it's a cliche, totally detached from the real past. And then their next stop is going to be Tangiers, So they cross over for a day to the ancient city of Tangiers in Morocco. Now here, oh, now we're going to get something really different, right? Um, and we do, We we, we get a where people look different they dress different and and twain is is into that it's he as always he kind of goes back and imagines the past and talks about the canaanites and the phoenicians and all of these but definitely there's something uh different here um, and he talks about the political system a little bit too of, of morocco which is being, he calls it the Emperor of Morocco. I think this was still nominally part of the Ottoman Empire, but there were like there was pashas and stuff that broke away from the Ottoman Empire by this point. Basically, it was probably an independent territory uh, by this point. Um, but um, but like before, we get this this kind of profound like poverty. This this feeling that this place is being left behind too. That. It's somewhere between its glorious past and, and the modern world that hasn't yet come here yet. It's just, it's just and then it becomes, when you, when you think about it that way, it just becomes sort of dull and gross. Um, so he talks about how poor these people are. Um, he says, many of them have to rake and scrape. He's talking about pilgrims, I think. Yeah, pilgrims going to Mecca, <laughs> raising money to try to go to Mecca. As many of them have to rake and scrape a long time to gather together the ten dollars their steamer passage costs, and when one of them gets back, he's bankrupt forever. Few Moors can ever build up their fortunes again in one short lifetime after so reckless an outlay. In order to confine the dignity of Hajin to gentlemen of patrician blood and possessions, the emperor decreed that no man should make the pilgrimage save bloated aristocrats who are worth. $100 $100 in species. But behold how inequity can circumvent the law for a consideration the Jewish money changer lends the pilgrim $100 long enough for him to swear himself through and then receives it back before the ship sails out of the harbor. End quote. So, you know, people desire to do this for religious reasons, to go on the hajj. It's important. And then they come back, they become kind of elevated. I think most Muslims don't do this. I, I don't know what the statistics are today. But certainly at the time, it wasn't most Muslims... Went on the Hodge, it would have been outside their budget, but you know, there's people willing to lend the money to do it, but it's kind of a reflection of tourism too. It's like the privilege can go on this trip that they're going on. Right. So it's the elite looking at the world through kind of a narrow window. And that's, that's how I sort of see this book. Now he's often saying stuff like this, and I'll just read this. This is in chapter nine, I guess at the end of the visit in Tangiers. And it, it happens so often, it's almost like a running um, joke. But I, I think it's reflecting just the experience that I'm trying to grasp here. He says, I'm glad to have seen Tangier, the second oldest town in the world, but I'm ready to bid it goodbye, I believe. And, and that's it. It's just a matter of fact. Say, oh, that was interesting. But, eh, I don't really want to see. He even, like, makes fun of... Uh, Staying there a long time saying like if the government wants to punish someone, they make them like counselor general to to Tangiers or something because it's such a horrible place to be. So I'm going to wrap it up pretty soon. Um, So after Tangiers, they go back to Gibraltar and then they they get on the steamship again and they go to Marseille. And this begins the French leg of their expedition, which I'll I'll, I'll talk about next time. That'll be my focus next time. But it's... uh, um, it's thematically very similar but we're in a very different place We're we're in a place where they're supposed to see wealth and progress and the grandeur of of the old world and we'll see what they what they actually see so anyways um let me know what you think of any of this uh let me know uh what your experience in reading innocence abroad was if you've read it um i'd really be interested in your opinions um and you know take me to task about tourism i don't know um some people seem to like it, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not really my cup of tea, and I, I kind of sympathize sometimes for Mark Twain and the the boredom he seems to feel at everything around him. Anyways, let me know what you think about any of this, and I will see you next time. I just can't wait to get on the road again. The life I love is making music with my friends. And I can't wait to get on the road again.